Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Class 3 of Watership Down. Uh, a special welcome to all of you long-suffering people, and I see there are several of you who also attended Riddles in the Dark this morning and are angling for like five hours of <laughs> live broadcast with me today. Uh, I, I trust that uh, your 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 patience and long-suffering uh, uh, and generosity will someday be rewarded. Um, today, we're going to move on to book two now. Of course, we have to finish book one first, but uh, we're going to move on to book two today. And as we when we transition into book two, I have uh, 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 something uh, special for you as we transition into that. But... First, before anything else, um, quick announcement, or rather, quick reminder. Something I've you know been have mentioned already a bunch of times um, in the past few months, but want to uh, start bringing more firmly to your attention because we're getting closer to it. And that is MythMoot, uh, the annual conference uh, put on by the Mythgard Institute. Um, if you guys have never been to MythMoot yet, you really should try. I know some of you are very far away. Though, so far, we have people coming to MythMoot from Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, uh, and, and England, um, at least. Uh, so, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 Lots of people coming from really far, but anyway, um, I hope that uh, that that you might be able to make it. Um, it's in Maryland on the weekend of January 10th of next year, so it's getting close now. Um, this is the big annual get together of the Mythgard Institute. Um, it's very much a combination of, you know, some serious academic discussion and uh, just a bunch of really congenial, like-minded people getting together uh, to talk about the stuff that they love for uh, for a weekend. Um, it is a fantastic kind of indulgence and a very respectable kind of indulgence uh, for those of you who enjoy uh, having the kinds of conversations and uh, you know the, the the sort of discussion that we're having here. Um, but anyway, we, uh, uh, we, we, I certainly hope that, uh, that many of you are able to make it. In fact, this year it's going to be really cool because several of the people who are presenting papers at the conference this year, we do paper presentations, we have an awesome panel of uh, presenters, uh, uh, and several of the papers are actually papers that were inspired uh, during our uh, Mythgard Academy sessions, either sort of in response to direct challenges that I've made or um, sort of in follow-up of, uh, of, of questions and answers during the session and maybe emails that, that have come in afterwards. Um, so it's gonna, it's, I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, to hear more uh, about, uh, about some of these things, some of the sort of the fruits of our discussion. I'm really interested to see uh, what people have to say. Um, and it's just a fun party, too. Um, we love to get together and, and, uh, and have a really good time. The combination of fun for people who are, you know, just fans wanting to have fun with other fans and also uh, non boring academic content uh, is something that I really focus on when we're planning this mood. So I'm really excited about it. Um, I look forward to uh, seeing, hopefully, as many of you there as possible. Um, go to mythguard.org um, and, uh, and and uh, go to the, the MythMoot page. Um, you can find that on the quick links box on the right-hand side. Uh, so I hope to see as many of you as possible. Now, let's return to book one. Uh, um, we were talking about um, 
uh, we were talking about the Warren of the Snares, of course. Um, and one of the, you know, the main thing that I was really interested in is looking at the Warren of the Snares. You know, so there were, there were a couple different things that we were doing. First off, you'll remember, we started by looking at the way in which the Warren of the Snares is, I think, the biggest crisis that Hazel's leadership um, faces. It's sort of the major obstacle that needs to be overcome in order for them to sort of survive as a unit. The question of Hazel's whole sort of approach to leadership um, of his uh, of his whole philosophy is really put to the test there. And as I was emphasizing last time, very importantly, the question of do we really believe Fiverr? Are we really willing to go out on a limb and trust Fiverr when he says we shouldn't do something, even when we um, even when we don't see any external reason to suggest that uh, there's anything to worry about? Um, and although they all, you know, in theory, kind of anyway, left the Sandalford Warren on his word, um, you know, as we, as, as I suggested last time, I don't think that's necessarily actually rigorously true. Um, you know, some did, Hazel did. Um, after Hazel, and, and even including Hazel, everybody else kind of had reason to go as well. This is really the first time that Fiverr's predictions have strongly come up against their own apparent best interest, their own apparent desires. Um, and those things really sort of, they, they overcome this crisis, which of course culminates in bigwigs being trapped in the snare. Um, we were looking at uh, Fiverr. We spent a lot of time in the second half of class, most of the second half of class, really looking at Silverweed and his poem, which I think is fascinating, um, both uh, sort of thematically and structurally. And you remember one of the things that I find uh, really uh, interesting about the Silverweed poem is the way in which it kind of pushes in two different directions, the way in which we get this clear sense of despair and that desire to go down into the earth with the leaves on their dark journey, but then we do have that looking upward towards Frith at the end. Um, and I think that we can see an impulse, which is not this. I, I don't think it's the same impulse all the way through. I think that we can kind of see it torn in a couple different ways. And I, we'll come back to that. Um, we'll come back to that next, uh, a, a little bit later on in tonight's class. Um, where I want to, I want to start with a brief glance um, at a moment that I find particularly interesting, um, which is the dream that Hazel has right before on, the, on their last night in the Warren of the Snares. This, you may remember, is right after the Silverweed incident when Fiverr goes up and Bigwig and Hazel follow him, and they sort of bully him into coming back down. They don't go back down to the Great Burrow. They go into a they go into a side burrow, the three of them, and sleep. And then they wake up in the morning to find that Fiverr has gone, and the two of them go to find him, and that's when Bilbo, or Bilbo, listen to me, Bigwig, gets caught in the snare. Um, so, uh, uh, but during that night, Hazel has a dream. Um, and I want to look at that for a second. It was cold. It was cold, and the roof was made of bones. The roof was made of the interlaced sprays of the yew tree, stiff twigs twisted in and out, over and under, hard as ice and set with dull red berries. Come on, Hazel, said Cowslip. We're going to carry the yew berries home in our mouths and eat them in the great burrow. Your friends must learn to do that if they want to go our way. No, no, cried Fiverr. Hazel, no! But then came Bigwig, twisting in and out of the branches, his mouth full of berries. Look, said Bigwig, I can do it. I'm running another way. Ask me where, Hazel. Ask me where. Ask me where. 
Then they were running another way, running, not to the warren, but over the fields in the cold, and Bigwig dropped the berries, blood-red drops, red droppings hard as wire. It's no good, he said. No good biting them. They're cold. Now, on the one hand, this might so this sounds in some ways like the dream that Fiverr related back in chapter two. You remember that first morning they woke up after Fiverr saw the message board. He related to Hazel that dream that he had, which was this sort of pastiche of images, which I promised we'll come back to um, at the end of the book. And if I forget, don't let me forget to do it. If I don't talk about make sure I talk about that on the last day of class um, when we do our final sort of bonus session um, after we finish book four. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, it, there, there, there are moments that sound that way. We get this sort of collection of images, but I, I think there's, there, there, are some, there are some differences here. Um, ways in which, for the, the, the main thing that strikes me um, in the differences between Hazel's dream here and Fiverr's dream before is that unlike Fiverr's, Fiverr's dream is a tangle of images of things that haven't happened. Um, there's no backwards frame of reference for them generally. I mean, there's there's the board, um, but there's not um, there's no backward frame of reference. What I mean is, for instance, by contrast, in Hazel's dream here, um, you know, Bigwig saying, "Ask me where, Hazel. Ask me where. Ask me where," is linked to not only stuff that's been happening, but conversations they were he was just having with Bigwig the previous day. Um, so that, that's what I mean by that, that in Hazel's dream, we see elements of stuff that he's obviously been thinking about and things that are on his mind introducing themselves into his dream. The, the yew berries, right? You know, the, 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 the interlaced sprays of the yew tree. The yew tree, of course, is that tree under which Hazel, or Fiverr, excuse me, took shelter on the first night when he did not go down with them into the Warren of the Snares. Um, so, uh, so again, you know, all these images of things that he's just recently seen and that he's been thinking about are in his mind. In this way, Hazel's dream sounds more like a regular dream than Fiverr's dream did, right? That is less sort of manifestly and purely prophetic than Fiverr's was. But um, as, uh, as, uh, you know, as Thomas points out, certainly there is foreshadowing here. It is nevertheless a prophetic dream, um, though, and one that is relevant much more obviously. We already, I already mentioned the point that there's, there's already one thing in Fiverr's dream that already, that happens the very next day, right? And that is when they leave the Warren and they need to cross the Enborn when the dog is, is loose and Fiverr and Pipkin get pushed out in the stream and Hazel says, swim, everybody swim. That's what he says in Fiverr's dream the night before. So, you know, one of the things gets fulfilled right away, but it's not like, even that isn't quite as immediate as this, where what which we can understand when we come back and look at this dream, you know, when we reread this passage, it's less obvious when we read it for the first time. But when we reread this passage, we can see the foreshadowing, Thomas, as you say, of Bigwig's being caught in the snare, right? We see him twisting in and out of the branches, the ask me where thing, which, which again, after the later uh, passages, we, un we understand to be connected uh, to the... Uh, uh, to the snaring, right? You know, in 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 Cowslip's Warren, and of and of course, most noticeably, those blood red drops, um, you know, with the drops of Bigwig's blood that do in fact fall onto the ground and look like yew berries. Um, so that's um, 
and of course, yes, as 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 Michael is pointing out, um, uh, the heart is wire. Of course, uh, you know that that very conspicuous simile, which um, again has such an obviously in, uh, important relevance in retrospect, though not so much to Hazel at the time. And the thing, the two things that I find striking about this in comparison with Fiverr's dream, um, is that you know, as Daniel. Fair says the dream is something that Hazel can understand from his point of view. Exactly, Daniel, and it's it's like something which is more like a thing that would emerge from his own mind, from his own subconscious, right? Um, but it does have a prophetic element. But Thomas, I like the word that you used. It's not exactly a prophecy as much as it is a foreshadowing, right? It's not clear. Um, Hazel does not wake up from this dream saying, "I have seen the future." Right, he has given been given a kind of a glimpse of the future, but he hasn't. Um, but again, it's it, it's not um, it's not really um, it's not really uh, a foretelling in the same way. He, you know, Daniel, I think of what you what you were saying. The dream is something he can understand. Yes, but of course, in another sense, it's one that he can't really understand. That is, he doesn't have the same kind of access to the prophetic element in it that Fiverr does, it seems, you know, Fiverr is very clear about, you know, he doesn't always know everything that's happening in the future, but when he sees something that he knows is going to happen in the future, when he senses something about the future, he knows that, right, and he says it. Um, Hazel wakes up from this dream, and there's no, I, I see no indication that Hazel believes he's had any kind of, um, you know, hinting of what is going to come. Patrick says it doesn't feel supernatural in the way that Fivers do. Um, right, and Patrick, to me, I would say the cause of that is the fact that it seems more natural than supernatural. Again, it, 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 this sounds like a dream, right? I mean, it sounds like the way normal dreams work. Um, whereas, again, Fivers is not exactly that. I mean, it has a kind of a sense of that, but, but, um, but again, less rooted in immediate pre previous experience. Um, so a couple things that I may, you know, so I, 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 in some ways, I'm not quite sure what conclusions to draw from this at this stage, but a few observations seem relevant, right? One is that glimpses of the future are given to rabbits who are not Fiverr, right? Um, I mean, that may seem obvious, but and even Fiverr, of course, himself suggested that he and Silverweed were like in some way. Um, that, um, <clears throat> again, that image of the two clouds, right, that almost merged together in five, you know, in Fiverr's mind that almost merged together to form one cloud, but then he drifted wide, he said. He drifted wide. He's not different from Silverweed, right? The two of them are clouds. They just didn't move in the same direction, and so therefore didn't join. Um, again, that's Fiverr's metaphor for the the distance, the, the gap um, between himself and Silverweed. Um, but even Hazel, has these kinds of these kinds of uh, of um, um, these kinds of leadings, right? These kinds of promptings. Um, and although he doesn't, again, he doesn't wake up, right? Yes, Carita says he doesn't wake up with a plan. Just a creepy feeling. Exactly. He um, he's sort of perturbed by the dream and clearly remembers it. Um, it also seems that he might remember it later. I doesn't say so explicitly, but when he uh, um, when he sees um, big, I think talking about the Hobbit for three hours this morning has pre-programmed my brain like five times. I've caught myself saying 
I kept myself from saying Bilbo, but I meant to say Bigwig. Um, that's going to get really awkward if I keep doing that, so I apologize in advance if that slips by me. I've got to switch gears a little more firmly in my brain. Um, but um, anyway, when he sees Bigwig's blood on the ground, it seems that, you know, I think there's a sort of implication. I don't know if Hazel remembers the dream or if we as readers are being prompted to remember Hazel's dream only, but anyway, I think um, uh, that sort of the relevance of it is something that our attention is drawn to. And again, I would point out that it's, it's, it's immediate. It's like, here is something for the crisis that is coming this morning. You know, not a long-term vision of things um, the way that Fiverr is uh, the way that Fiverr is given. Um, but um, anyway, so we're. Uh, uh, I think this is just you know it's sort of interesting to file away. One of the things that I want to be coming back to again, you know, we've been talking about Fiverr, of course, and I want to carry on talking about Fiverr's visions. But one of the reasons I wanted to flag this passage here is that, in my mind, it's it's not exactly it's not just about Fiverr's visions. That is, the question isn't just one of prophecy; it's one of sort of the role of the well, the role of the supernatural in general um, in this book, um, and that is something that I want to more broadly look at, see how Fiverr's visions fit into that, but also start to build the whole picture. Um, because this is one of the this is one of the clearest indications again, sort of non silverweed category, in which we get this sense that um, it's not just Fiverr, this is not just about Fiverr being some kind of a spiritual freak, but that uh, that this is sort of a this is sort of a general thing. Um, so as I said, we'll 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 come back to that more later. Um, but big Hazel and Bigwig pursuing Fiverr out into the field. Um, this is uh, this is I think a real an, an important moment, an important turning point for Hazel, um, and it seems to me really important that this happens here and now. That is prior to the crisis. Um, it is not what what we are given is not merely that the crisis with Bigwig and the revelation about the truth of the Warren of the Snares is what shakes Hazel back. I think the fact, and, and by back I mean back into following Fiverr. He's been turning away from Fiverr. He's been rejecting Fiverr's advice. Fiverr can't make him listen. He wants so much to believe that he has led them to a good place, um, that, uh, that you know, he sort of takes the, you know, the credit of leading them to this beautiful new Warren where they have everything they could possibly want to. And it's like, this is a testimony of his excellent leadership. You've got wonderful judgment, Hazel. Remember that? Um, and he gets kind of puffed up about it to the point where he, he deliberately, even though he feels uneasy about a bunch of things going on at this new Warren, he's still saying things to Fiverr like, you're endangering our, 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 our place in this new Warren. And Fiverr just can't make him listen to his own um, uneasiness about it, I think it's important to see. It's important for understanding of Hazel's character that Hazel, excuse me, that Hazel makes a turn before the truth is revealed. He doesn't just come back, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't just see the light when everything is revealed. 
this is you know he's Fiverr has left them in the night right he's left them um, he's left them out uh, uh, you know he's left them in the cold he's left the burrow cold behind him and he and, and Hazel and Bigwig pursue him and Hazel's angry and Bigwig's angry um, and they're gonna they're gonna go out and confront Fiverr and Bigwig you know he goes out and they Hazel they find Fiverr and Hazel just starts right starts grazing next to him and doesn't do anything and Bigwig's all confused like I thought we were gonna browbeat him isn't that what we came uh, what we came up here for Hazel says I know but I feel differently now I'm sorry Bigwig I was going to ask you to help me make him come back to the Warren but now well I've always found that there was something in what Fiverr had to say for the last two days I've refused to listen to him and I still think he's out of his senses but I haven't the heart to drive him back to the Warren I really believe that for some reason or other the place is frightening him out of his wits I'll go with him a little way and perhaps we can talk I can't ask you to risk it too anyway the others ought to know what we're doing and they won't unless you go and tell them I'll be back before Nefrith I hope we both shall so two things that I think are really important here one is as I said Hazel has recognized the problem right he still hasn't fully turned away from this is not a this is not a moment of you know apology and repentance on Hazel's part right he's not saying to Fiverr oh Fiverr I'm so sorry I didn't believe you um, he still thinks he's out of his senses right he in a sense he still doesn't believe him but he recognizes the fact that he is refusing to listen to him and that that is potentially a problem right he balks at actually exerting his authority to override Fiverr and this would be an override in a more or less permanent kind of way you know that is to say like Fiverr you you believe it's not safe whatever I don't care I'm gonna come because I'm the boss I'm gonna compel you to do this thing that you are not only that you're saying you're terrified of and that is a terrible idea for us to do um, that would be a complete shift from his earlier, you know, his his lifelong relationship with Fiverr, um, you know, the whole year that they've been alive, and um, uh, and, but he doesn't do it, right? He he balks from that. He doesn't take that final step. Um, you know, I, it would I think it would be melodramatic to say like the final step towards tyranny, right? It's I mean like you could kind of make that case, I think, but I, I think that would be kind of overblowing it. Um, the important thing I think though about seeing how this works notice what it is that drives him to change his mind it's his compassion for Fiverr it's not his conviction right this is not I mean he does say I've always I've always uh, found that there's something in what Fiverr had to say he does say maybe it's not such a great idea to, to, to continue to refuse to listen to him but this is not a change of heart that comes about primarily from his convictions it's not Hazel saying oh, I've been an idiot I really should be listening to Fiverr right that's not what he's doing he's not planning to listen to Fiverr he's planning to bring Fiverr back he's hoping to talk Fiverr out of it and that he hopes that before Nefrith they'll both be back in the Warren right so he's not planning to obey Fiverr, to listen to to heed Fiverr, but what he is experiencing is compassion. What he what he does is you know, what causes him to pause. What what leads him in this moment to sort of reach back out to Fiverr instead of just trying to overrule Fiverr is his compassion for Fiverr's own personal suffering. I really believe that for some reason or other the place is frightening him out of his wits. Um, uh, 
Yes, April says, now that I see him, I do pity him. Uh, April, you're going to help my, big, my Bilbo fixation here. Uh, but, uh, yes, exactly, exactly. I know that was Frodo, but we're talking about pity. and Anyway, so I'm going to associate it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now Carolyn points out that uh, trust in Fiverr's vision and intuitive sense, uh, you know, she asks if it's a matter of faith, especially early on when there hasn't been empirical confirmation of his being right for really where do, do, do his visions come from, from Lord Frith. We, we're not, we don't really know the answer to that for, for certain, um, uh, at least not at this point. Um, now, but the thing to remember, Carolyn, Hazel does have confirmation. It's true that his prophecy about the destruction of the Old Warren, or like the bad thing that's coming to the Old Warren, hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, that's absolutely right. So again, everybody but Hazel doesn't yet really have any reason to believe that Fiverr is telling the truth. But again, this is what, it's what Fiverr tasks Hazel with, and it's what Hazel um, uh, is sort of is, is feeling guilty about himself here. He does know. He's always found that there was something in what Fiverr had to say. Um, he tells the three era, remember, in chapter three, um, you know, he, 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 I found him right again and again, he says. You know, he's, he's often predicted things like this, and, and I, I, I found him right again and again. Um, so for Hazel, it is a matter of experience. He does have reason to believe. Um, he have, does have reason to have faith. Um, but it's hard to have faith in, even in something you have cause to believe in. Um, you know, if something has been confirmed for you, that's great, and you might believe in it because of your experience, but can you insist on that belief in the face of, a, of strong reasons to believe otherwise? And, um, you know, when Fiverr is telling you that this, like, idyllic-looking situation is, uh, is really actually dangerous? Um, uh yeah, so um, not to mention the fact that he has his own sort of personal motivations to want Fiverr's prediction about the Warren of the Snares not to be true, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, as Patrick says, it's easy to follow on the little things, much harder when the prediction requires such a huge contradiction to the apparent surroundings. Yes, and I would add um, a, a, a huge uh, deviation from his own personal desires, right? His own, uh, um, what he wants to be true. He really does not want Fiverr to be right about this warrant because he wants to believe that he's led them to this awesome place. Um, anyway, okay, but, but again, the thing that I come back to here that I want to start and leave with here is Hazel's compassion. Um, this, I think, is one of Hazel's most important traits, um, if there's one thing I think that really sets Hazel aside um, most consistently, I would say, it's his compassion. His, he is quicker than almost anybody else to think about what other people are feeling and to put himself into the position of other people, even when those other people are not rabbits, as we're going to talk about later tonight. Um, but uh, he's the one who is always putting himself in the position of others, seeing seeing the value in in others that are skipped over, um, uh, you know, by the majority, um, and all those things. And I think that you know, yes, he is courageous. But even that, um, you know, if you look back, I mean, uh, Hazel has has marvelous courage, um, but 
if you look back at the description of the moments in which he is described as acting courageously, um, it is primarily he's primarily thinking of others, right? It's not just the fact that like Bigwig is brave because he doesn't have as much fear as everybody else. Um, Hazel does what he does because he's thinking of other people more than he's thinking of himself. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so I think this that it's, again, it's 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 a uh, it's an important moment. Let's come to because I do want to get to book two. Uh, let's come to Hazel's or Fiverr's um, revelation, Fiverr's uh, uh, recounting of the story of the Warren of the Snares, having sort of put it all together in a combination of what seems to be uh, prophetic insight and just reason. That is, he's he's pieced together the story. Remember that image of him trying to grip the uh, the tree bark, right? The apple tree bark, um, which he couldn't quite get his teeth in. When Bigwig gets caught in the wire, he puts his teeth on it, right? And he's able to see what exactly brings all of this stuff together. Um, so, uh, two passages I want to emphasize from his, um, uh, his stream, and I love the way in which Adams puts Fiverr's story of the Warren and the Snares in like one really long paragraph, right? And I think it's a, it's a really cool way that he conveys uh, visually to the reader um, the way in which Fiverr's story is kind of tumbling all over itself, right? It is not like Dandelion stories, you know, sort of a carefully structured and, um, and uh, uh, sort of gracefully presented story. It's this sort of stream of... Uh, of uh, you know this, this sort of not frenzy that's not the right word but uh, um, really sort of impassioned stream of 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 of, of thought and story from Fiverr. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the rabbits became strange in many ways, different from other rabbits. <clears throat> they knew well enough what was happening, but even to themselves they pretended that all was well, for the food was good, they were protected, they had nothing to fear but the one fear, and that struck here and there, never enough at a time to drive them away. They forgot the ways of wild rabbits. They forgot Elohera. For what use had they for tricks and cunning, living in the enemy's warren and paying his price? They found out other marvelous arts to take the place of tricks in old stories. They danced in ceremonious greeting. They sang songs like the birds and made shapes on the walls. And though these things could help them, not at all, yet they passed the time and enabled them to tell themselves that they were splendid fellows, the very flower of rabbitry, cleverer than magpies. Um, notice how even his sentence structure is tumbling all over itself. Um, uh, uh, the 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 I, I love the the pacing of this. I think um, Adams is I, I find Adams's style to be really wonderful. It's very leisurely in places, um, but uh, but I think I, I I think it's just gorgeous in a lot of places and really really well done. Um, So the Warren, the rabbits in the Warren of the Snares became unrabbit-like. But what I would argue is that they become unrabbit-like in rabbit-like ways. Um, they found out other marvelous arts to take the place of tricks and old stories. Right? Those are, you know, two of the cornerstones of rabbit culture, as we've seen. Right? The Elahera stories have plainly demonstrated how tricks and cunning are the two, you know, the sort of the two core, you know, bedrock values of the rabbits, the two, th you know, the things that, that make her make rabbits truly great and heroic. Um, 
but of course they have no more use for tricks and cunning but they're still rabbits right so what they so what do they do they take their ingenuity they take their cleverness and it gets twisted you know they're the, instead of formulating tricks in order to outwit their enemies their trickiness is kind of like turned inwards right um, and they trick themselves instead they trick themselves into believing that they're splendid fellows the very flower of rabbitry right um, that they have transcended the the old ways right you think of the exceptionally patronizing tone in which they respond to dandelion's story of Elahera, right um, yes as Daniel says in professing to be wise they became fools um, yes and you can say even more strongly uh, that's a quotation from first Corinthians chapter 1 um, uh, no, that's, sorry, Romans chapter 1. I'm thinking of the wisdom and foolishness the stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But anyway, almost almost miscited your reference there, Daniel. Um, but um, uh, but one could say even more strongly than uh, 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 Paul accuses people in Romans chapter 1 um, that having become fools, they convince themselves that they were wise. Right? Um, but... Um, Anyway, so and 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 what replaces it? Art and artistry, right? Um, an art which leaves behind the traditional values. And but notice the bridge. This is where I think the shape of laburnum, the 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 Ella of laburnum that Strawberry shows to Hazel is really interesting because in there we can see sort of the transitional moment, right? The new form. That still hasn't forgotten Elahera, right? So they're not not telling stories of Elahera anymore. Instead, they're doing sort of abstract Elahera visual art, right? And then they they stop recalling it um, even there. Um, uh, yeah. Now, Thomas uh, Johnson makes a great point. You know, they they haven't completely abandoned tricks and cunning, right? In that they they do deceive Hazel and his followers, and it does appear to be. An active, you know, it's it's not merely that they're strange and uh, and you know, I mean they do seem to have a policy among themselves never to ask the question where, right? That's their one rule, strictest, as Fiverr says. Um, it's not just that they're putting that on in order to to deceive uh, Hazel and Fiverr. They seem to not really ever talk about it among themselves. So there's a level in which they're you could say, oh, well, they're not really actively, but it's clear that they are actively attempting to deceive them, right? They're trying to keep it from them. Um, but, um, oh, yeah, Philip Lord points out that uh, uh, Strawberry is the one who still finds the Elahera interesting. We see him, Strawberry, already maybe sort of looking backwards a little bit, Philip, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, April asks, what does this say about the place of, of sort of culture and art in, in rabbit life? Stories are okay, but no more. Um, yes, yes. I, I guess I, I guess so. I, what does it show about their culture? What does it show about their um, art? Right? Because it's not that rabbits are anti-art because they're pro-storytelling, and storytelling is an art, and not just the story. You know, you have the story itself as a narrative work, as and the performance of the storyteller. Um, those are both very sophisticated uh, forms of art. So it's not that they're anti-art. Um, what are they then? 
where wherein lies the difference? Where you know when we compare Silverweed's poetry to uh, to Dandelion's prose story, when we uh, you know and and you know also the shape of laburnum sort of thrown thrown in there. Um, uh, what do we uh, um, what do we see? What are the differences there? Well, one difference is again you think of the way in which they think of the way in which the you know Hazel's rabbits connect with stories, right? And the kind of relationship they have with stories and what the stories mean to them, um, not just in terms of sort of applicability, ab you know, uh, abstractly understood, but um, uh, but actually the you know sort of the imaginative relationship they have with it. We'll, we're going to look at this in a little bit later. Um, we're going to. Sorry, I'll, t I'll say that again. We're going to look at this a little bit later on. Um, uh, so we'll come back to that to some extent. But one thing that I think is one difference that I would point to is the stories establish connections. Connections among the rabbits who are listening, connections between the rabbits who are listening and rabbits who came before. Right in listening to the stories of Elahrera and retelling the stories of Elahrera, um, you are participating in rabbitry. Right, you are you are sort of reinforcing your position within the whole. The arts adopted by the um, rabbits of the, in the Warren of the Snares seem to me a fun, of a fundamentally different kind, designed to distinguish themselves from the other rabbits. And Thomas, I want to come back to your point about the, uh, the their application of tricks and cunning in deceiving Hazel and his followers. Um, yes, but of course you see how, again, that's been perverted. It's been twisted, right? Yes, you're not supposed to be tricking rabbits. Right? They're not supposed to be tricking other rabbits in that way. Certainly not to their own destruction like that. Um, you're, you're, you're not... Uh, they are deceiving Hazel and his friends into becoming, uh, you know, fodder for the man's snares. That is deeply... Uh, you know, in... What would be the Lapine version of inhumane? Right? Like... Uh, on lapine, I guess. Um, but anyway, and of course, Philip, yes, they're deceiving themselves. You're right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yana makes a great point, too. Yana says the arts in the Warrens seem to be uh, those of idle hands, not much to do with normal rabbit life, and the result of them not having to take care of themselves as a normal Warren would. Yes, there's in that way no. No immediate applicability, right? You, 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 you learn tricks and you learn, you know, Rabbit, you learn how to be a good rabbit, right? From the stories of Ella Herrera. What do you learn from the shapes, right? Um, anyway, um, good. Carolyn was just saying exactly that same thing that stories are teaching rabbits how to be true rabbits. Um, yes, good. And as Kate Neville adds, a statue can't help you survive. Um, no, no, not in that way. Now, I hope nobody thinks that I'm trying to diss the visual arts in, in, in saying these things. Um, uh, but I think that the, the, the context that we're given for these things um, are, uh, are, are, are clearly, I mean, I think this is clearly relevant within the context of this story. As Sharon Powell says, the classic rabbit stories inspire the listeners and give them the courage to fight for their survival. Um, absolutely.
Absolutely. Um, now, uh, one last point here from Fiverr's uh, long speech. They had no chief rabbit. No, how could they? For a chief rabbit must be Elahrera to his warren, and keep them from death. And here there was no death but one, and what chief rabbit could have an answer to that? Instead, Frith sent them strange singers, beautiful and sick like oak apples, like robin's pincushions on the wild rose. And since they could not bear the truth, these singers, who might in some other places have been wise, were squeezed under the terrible weight of the warning secret until they gulped out fine folly about dignity and acquiescence and anything else that could make believe that the rabbit loved the shining wire. Frith sent them strange singers. Okay, so Silverweed was inspired by Frith by implication, right? Uh, again, this this if the, this whole story is a combination of inference and insight on Fiverr's part, um, what he primarily has to go with go on is Silverweed, right? In his own experience, um, is Silverweed inspired? I, I, the implication to some extent. I think whatever it is that Fire is in touch with, Silverweed is in touch with is in touch with too. Frith sent them strange singers, um, who might in some other place have been wise, but instead squeezed under the terrible weight of the Warren's secret. Um, since they couldn't bear the truth, they gulped out fine folly. Right, their own utterances were twisted. Um, as Arthur Harrow says, they love the shining wire rather than frith, um, which sounds almost like uh, sounds almost like death worship. Uh, Arthur says it makes the it makes uh, the rabbits sound like Numenorians, uh, kind of though they're not avoiding they're not seeking to avoid death in that way, um, but um, uh, nor are they commemorating the dead. They're doing sort of the opposite of that, but um, but certainly they're fixated on it. Um, uh, but again, you know, here I, is where I want to go back to Silverweed's song for a second, and that what I was pointing at earlier on uh, in the class about the two different directions. I think we can see that song going. I tend to read that um, as a kind of a confirmation or, or, or a manifestation of what Fiverr is describing here. Um, the reason that um, there are those two impulses in Silverweed's song the up to frith and going into the heart of the light and following the leaves down into darkness um, is they're both there in the song and I think here we can see sort of the inspiration and the perversion that makes it sound really simple I don't mean to say something as as uh, as sort of cut and dried as you know stanzas one through three are twisted whereas stanza four is inspired I don't mean that at all because um, indeed you can see in the entire song an in, you know, the, in the, the, the entire, uh, I was about to call it a story, sort of, um, but anyway, the, the entire poem of Silverweed is engaged with the idea of escape, right? Let me go with you, wind. Let me go with you. You know, I will go with you, stream. Um, this desire for him, for, you know, this desire of the speaker of the song, um, it's hard to even identify that with Silverweed himself, um, uh, to leave their situation to escape um, not to be a rabbit anymore to transform what being a rabbit means uh, to become something that he is not in order to escape what is but 
the situation that they're in, but in a sense that which also leads to despair and death. I mean, can you see how the, the those ideas are all tangled together um, in that song? Uh, anyway, so I think uh, um, it's uh, it's it's. Okay, so I, I I was thinking when we were talking about the poem last time. I was thinking about this um, this sort of little piece of uh, of kind of prophetic uh, uh, poetic criticism that uh, that Fiverr is doing here um, to describe what their strange singers are beautiful and sick like oak apples. Um, uh, it's just a, it's 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 a marvelous description. Um, Last note on book one before we before we leave it. Um, Strawberry joining them. Notice how this happens, and, and again, I think that this is it's fascinating that this is the note on which we leave the Warren of the Snares and we leave book one. Um, Take me with you. There was no reply, and he repeated, "Take me with you." We don't care for creatures who deceive us," said Silver. Better go back to Nildrohain. No doubt she's less particular. Ooh, insult his wife, too. Strawberry gave a kind of choking squeal, as though he'd been wounded. He looked from Silver to Hazel, then to Fiverr. At last, in a pitiful whisper, he said, The wires. Silver was about to answer, but Hazel spoke first. You can come with us, he said. Don't say any more. Poor fellow. A few minutes later, the rabbits had crossed the cart track and vanished into the, into the copse beyond. A magpie, seeing some light-colored object conspicuous on the empty slope, flew closer to look, but all that lay there was a splintered peg and a twisted length of wire. First, of course, we see again Hazel's compassion, right? Um, notice how Hazel's pity for Strawberry cuts across the resent you know, the resentfulness that, that they all feel towards Strawberry and his companions. Right? I mean, Strawberry was the one who was personally involved in deceiving Hazel, right? And yet Hazel's compassion for Strawberry's suffering and his bereavement with the death of Nildrohane um, just just absolutely and unquestioningly trumps that in his mind. Um, that moment when Strawberry utters the dreadful word, right? You know, when he speaks the unspeakable, when he breaks the taboo of his warren, um, which really seems to be the moment when he, is, when he is separating himself from that culture of which he has been a part, right? And mentions the wires, answers the question that they haven't asked, right? Um, they don't even have to ask him where, but he's answering a where question, where is Nildrohain, right? They've not asked it, but he's answering it, the wires. Um, and by the way, this is something that didn't occur to me uh, until like the last couple times I read the book. But you remember when Bigwig, the, the day before, when Bigwig and Hazel are out uh, together and they see the place where there are these, you know, scratches and furrows in the ground and, um, you know, dead leaves thrown everywhere. And it looks like, you know, they're asking if they're, you know, the, 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 the you know, cowslips, rabbits go out and dance in the moonlight, right? Um that was Nildrohain, presumably. That the, what they're seeing, because it's very fresh. They said, um, I mean, it's it's the the ground had just been disturbed, um, and uh, uh, that presumably was the the site where Nildrohain had died that day. Um, remember, we just saw her um, the day before, but then Strawberry and Nildrohain don't show up um, 
uh, later on. So you know, just there in the last twelve hour, twelve hours, Mill Drohane has been snared, and Fiverr says they never snare. He never snares too many at a time. Um, but that idea that uh, you know, thinking you know, and sort of go back and reread it, um, that scene where Bigwig and and Hazel are looking at the that scratched up patch and wondering, um, um, wondering what happened there, right? When you think about Strawberry's mate, Mildred O'Hane, being the one who has just died there, it, I, I think it makes it even more, uh, even more poignant. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, notice how I mean, basically, what's happening with Strawberry here is Strawberry is sort of rejoining Rabbit Kind, right? No, remember his sort of headlong run um, of escape um, that "Take Me With You," right? Think about the way that that almost echoes Silverweed's song, right? "Take me with you, wind. Take me with you, stream. Take me with you, rabbits. I shall be rabbit of the rabbits," <laughs> right? You know, Strawberry. Um, Strawberry's not going to go down with the leaves. He's not going to. Uh, he's not even going to go up into the sun. He's going to go with other rabbits. Um, and I think that that's... Uh, the, uh, the, the fact that that's Strawberry's decision, I think, seems to be really clear. But again, it's sort of... It's endorsed and it's embraced by Hazel's pity um, and by his by his compassion. It's a crucial statement of Hazel's principles, right? That he's going to accept and forgive Strawberry um, just based upon, you know, this is what Strawberry is joining, right? The very sort of reaching out to rabbitry that Strawberry is doing here um, is what Hazel sort of reflects back to him. Yes, this is rabbitry, to welcome um, our fellow rabbits and to stick together. Um, and uh, and in this, they don't, you know, um, they don't repay evil with evil. Uh, as, you know, Bigwig is immediately thinking, right, only one, you take him silver, right? Um, they're planning to kill him when they see him coming. Um, and we get that wonderful last image of the twisted wire, right? The splintered peg and a twisted length of wire lying there, um, you know, uh, used but no longer dangerous. Now it's been pulled, right? It, the thing which almost led to Bigwig's death and, of course, metaphorically, all of their deaths there in that warren, um, and um, uh, you know, and so so I, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a marvelous little sort of symbol there at the end of book one. Okay, um, I said uh, before we as we transition into book two, I have a I have a, a sort of a special treat. I hope you'll find it a, a special treat. I have um, uh, pictures. Uh, I was. Um, uh, in the summer of 2012, my family and I um, went to England for a couple weeks, and while I was there, I prevailed upon my uh, long-suffering wife and children um, to take a side trip and go with me to find Watership Down, because um, I'd always wanted to see it for myself. I knew it was a real place, and I knew that all the things that are described in the uh, in the book are real. Um, so with the very great assistance uh, of our own Ed Powell, who gave me uh, very explicit directions of how to find the pretty hard to find car park um, uh, across the street from the path leading up to Watership Down. I actually did manage to go and find it. So I just want for those of you who are unfamiliar with what's being described, I want to show you what Watership Down really looks like. Um, there, these are just pictures that I took on my iPhone, so they're not you know they're not uh, awesome professional quality pictures, but. Uh, um, 
but just to give you a kind of an idea, uh, a visual for what Watership Down um, uh, looks like. This is, uh, I'm on the edge of Watership Down looking over uh, at the, the, next, the next down over, but just to give you a sense of the sort of the general topography, um, how dramatic that, you know, when they talk about over in the hills over there, I mean, I live, uh, I live right now, um, you know, in, in, in New England, and there are hills all over the place, right? So, you know, I, whenever I read that as a child, and when I was, at, when I was, when I was first given the book, um, when I was little, I lived in West Virginia, um, which was very mountainous. So, you know, over there in the hills, never really conveyed to me how dramatic it is. You know, we've got this flat land and then these huge downs uh, that rise up. And you can just sort of see how, you know, the land goes off in flatness into the distance. And then you have this huge hill. But it's not just like a rounded or a rolling hill. It's this really steep um, hillside with a flat plain, you know, and like farmland up on top. Um, uh, so, um, uh, <laughs> Brian says, I always found it funny how a down is a hill. Brian, my sons were making a lot of jokes about that. Um, we heard many, uh, um, we heard many references to uh, how uh, my, my son Matthias was saying how they should be called ups and not downs, obviously. Um, but, um, this uh, this is a, another picture from so you can see that that uh, that next down over is right there again this is more of a view of off the edge of watership down down into the you know so you can see the land you know the, the kind of land that they would have crossed and the the forests you know the, the sort of the patches of forests and the fields uh, and the farmland um, uh, then this next one is my favorite um, this is near as I could figure, um, and I, I, as I said, my family was being very generous. No, my, my, my oldest son, Nicholas, had read Watership Down with me um, by this time, so he at least knew what I was talking with and was sort of, uh, sort of a little more uh, indulgent. My youngest was four, um, so he didn't have too much patience. Um, it, you remember how uh, Adams describes how much more tiring it is for you know for a man in, on the top in his six foot tower to move himself up a down. Well, it turns out a four year old trying to move a three foot tower up the down is even more tiring. But um, anyway, so I, point is, I didn't have nearly as much time to explore I, I, as I would like. I would love to go back to Watership Down and spend just a day or two wandering over. I didn't get to find the Endborn or the Test, which I really wanted to do. Um, you know, I didn't find the Crixa. Oh, we'll come to that later. Um, so I really, I really had uh, wanted to sort of do um, do all of those things, which I didn't get a chance to do. Um, Yana, there is a plaque there identifying it as Watership Down uh, in the parking lot across the road uh, where I park. There's a there's a there's a whole um, thing on Watership Down. Uh, Carolyn asks if I saw Nuthanger Farm. I I, I, I think I saw it in the direction of it, but I'm not 100% sure. Again, I was kind of rushed, um, and I'm not 100% sure that I was always sort of looking in the right direction. Um, but there are, so there are a few things that I can show you in pictures that are really clear, and this is one of them. This is, this is when I got most excited. We got up to the edge of the down up here, and I looked down, and I'm like, oh, it's the iron tree! Look, look, it's the iron tree! This is the pylon line that they crossed under. So that la final description there in the first chapter of book two... Um, 
when they uh, when they you know they, remember there's that wide open space they had they had to cross. This is the the area that Holly and Bluebell were crossing right when 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 Holly was sort of an extremist there. Um, this is the you know the pylon line that was humming up above them that Fiverr said uh, wouldn't be any harm and and would uh, um, and which they could pass under without any danger. Um, and uh, it's um, it's 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 really uh, the the. I'm standing on the edge of the down. It's not a cliff. I mean, I could carefully have walked down the down, though it's pretty precipitous in places. Um, but you know, here when you you know when you read those descriptions with dandelion standing up on the anthill and saying, "You can see the whole world," right? I mean, it's this. This is how striking it is. You can see how high you are up on the edge of the down above the top of that very high uh, um, that very high pylon um, there. So. Um, uh, so anyway, as I said, when I saw that, when I saw the uh, the, the power lines, that's when I was uh, when I started to get uh, really excited. Um, this is I don't know that this is the beach hangar, but this is an example. Of, it's right on the edge of Watership Down, looking out over um, you know a sort of the, the the kind of clump of forest that 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 is up there. You know, a sort of thick woodland. Um, which again, so if this isn't the beach hanger, it's I'm convinced a a, a clump of trees quite like it. Um, it also seemed to me a good candidate for at least the kind of place um, where the rabbits ended up building their warren on Watership Down, um, because it is right next to the gallop. This is the gallop that the mice found um, and told them about, um, where you know the, the the horse gallop where the grass was cut uh, shorter. I walked along this gallop for like a mile before I realized where I was walking and I'm like, wait, this is the gallop where the good grass is. Um, that's my son Nicholas, by the way, who uh, had uh, the patience and fortitude and indulgence of his father to come along with me uh, all the way up, um, though we soon left my wife and the four-year-old behind. Um, I'm not sure that these fences were there uh, when Hazel and Fiverr were there, uh, but uh, but anyway, this this gallop runs all the way along the top. As you can see, they they're not just rounded hills. It's 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 an extended um, uh, uh, flatland up up on the top, um, and that's where this uh, where this where this horse gallop is. Um, this is uh, the soil. This is another thing I was really excited to see. I was like, whoa, that's chalk. Um, actual just chunks of white chalk sitting there loose in the soil. Um, you remember the, in the description it said how that there was this white, hard white substance, and he, he referred to the chalk. Um, I, I remember as a child reading those descriptions and just kind of getting the impression that the, the soil was just kind of chalky in some way, um, that it was sort of, but, but no actual chunk, like large chalk deposits uh, here here in the soil. So again, you can see how, you know, when they're sort of focusing on how, the, you know, the rabbits are talking about how, how different and strange the soil is up there. Um, uh, that was something I found really striking when I was there. Um, and this is our last picture. This is our intrepid four-year-old at the beginning uh, of the journey, which is about as far as he got. This is uh, uh, moving up towards the, the uh, up the gentle slope uh, of the side of the down. We didn't walk up the face of it, um, mostly because of the fences. If not for the fences, I certainly would have. Uh, but I felt a little bit guilty, especially since I had my nine-year-old with me, and I thought that I probably shouldn't primarily lead him to trespass on other people's properties and climb over fences and go through gates that were obviously closed for a reason. 
but anyway, um, we uh, 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 so we didn't do any strenuous climbing. Um, Gerald asks if I saw any rabbits. No, and I looked. Uh, I, needless to say, I was on the lookout for rabbits, but I didn't see any. Um, but uh, we will. Um, uh, I, I do hope to go back someday, and if I do, I promise I will. I will take even more pictures uh, the next time I go. Um, so. Um, Anyway, yeah, so this is uh, this is my younger son Matthias and uh, uh, Mrs. the Tolkien Professor uh, climbing up Watership Down in front of me here. Um, so anyway, that's uh, my 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 little brief pictorial of uh, Watership Down and what Watership Down looks like, um, just so that you can have some uh, uh, some some associations with it. Um, uh, uh, you know, as you're as you're reading these descriptions, and it was it was a lot of fun for me actually to see it. Um, but thinking of this view um, going up Watership Down, of course, this is not going up, as I said, the precipitous side. Um, but looking at the clouds rolling over, this seemed like a good place to end the pictorial and segue back into the text. Um, uh, so uh, I want to go back here in the description of Watership Down and sort of looking at this to, to thinking about the secondary world that Adams is creating here, you know, the fantasy world that he's creating. I talked about this back in the first class. And again, and I just want to keep um, kind of coming back to this. Remember, those of you who did the Dune class with me will remember that there were a bunch of times when I brought in passages, not because I thought they were crucially important in the story as a whole, but because I felt that they illustrated some of the things that I find to be really cool and really compelling about Dune as a book. Um, you know, I was trying to sort of point to what it is I like about Dune, what I find so fascinating about Dune, what I think Herbert does really well. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm wanting to do the same thing uh, about this book as well, because the thing that I feel that this book succeeds in as well as any other book I've read is bringing us into that secondary world. But it does it so remarkably because it brings us into, it makes our primary world into a secondary world. The way that Adam succeeds, not in simply anthropomorphizing rabbits, but really bringing us into a rabbit view of the world. Um, the way that he brings us to see things that we would normally take for granted in a fundamentally different way. I think is 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 extremely compelling um, and enormously successful in this story. Um, so here's Hazel going up the side uh, of Watership Down for the first time. Um, As Hazel still went up, the south wind began to blow, and the June sunset reddened the sky to the zenith. Hazel, like nearly all wild animals, was unaccustomed to look up at the sky. What he thought of as the sky was the horizon, usually broken by trees and hedges. Now, with his head pointing upward. He found himself gazing at the ridge, as, as over the skyline came the silent, moving, red-tinged cumuli. Their movement was disturbing, unlike that of trees or grass or rabbits. These great masses moved steadily, noiselessly, and always in the same direction. They were not of this world. Um, I love that description. It's a kind of thing that... I would totally never have thought of on my own, right? When I was when I'm imagining this world, you know, through Hazel's eyes, but as soon as he brings it out, um, it it's it's not only that it enables me to picture this scene really clearly. A mere description would have done that. Um, you know, his description of the silent, moving, red-tinged cumuli would have been enough for me. Um, but instead, well, you know, 
the way in which he opens up the whole worldview of the rabbit. You know, recognize the rabbit who is always alert, who is always looking around, who is always looking for anything out of the ordinary, right? And they're so used to scrutinizing the surroundings that they have, they are extremely perceptive to any change in movement. There's some movement that they dismiss, right? The movement of the grass in the breeze, the rustling of the leaves in the wind. Um, all these things are normal movements, normal motions, part of the way the world works, part of the regular rhythm of the world, the disruption of which they'll notice, right? Because it could mean, you know, one of the Elil approaching. Um, the idea that the clouds, that what's disturbing about the clouds is their motion, right? That here we have something which, which will set off his alarms, right? Because in seeing the clouds move, that's not how things normal, normally move, right? So he's going to look up at the clouds and be like, what's that, right? Something out of the ordinary. Is that dangerous? But instead of being dangerous, it's just alien, right? It's, it's because not only do they move differently, and is he not used to seeing that motion, but it moves unnaturally, right? Um, uh, the, the, the great masses move steadily, noiselessly, and always in the same direction. What moves like that, right? Maybe stuff floating down the stream, but they don't spend any time by rivers either, right? What, you know, nothing in this world moves like that. You know, just silently, slowly, steadily, with no purpose. You can't see it walking. It's just sort of flying and floating along. They're familiar with clouds, but the, the fundamental alienness of the clouds. Um, again, just drawing our attention to that concept just helps to open up the whole, you know, the whole world. A paragraph like this enables me to imagine being a rabbit, you know, looking at the world the way a rabbit would look at it in a way that makes for me this story an incredibly powerful secondary world, an incredibly powerful fa fantasy sub-creation um, that, um, that makes this such, a, such a, a stimulating and satisfying place to sort of invest my imagination. Look where Hazel goes from there. Oh, Frith, thought Hazel, turning his head for a moment to the bright glow in the west. Are you sending us to live among the clouds? If you spoke truly to Fiverr, help me to trust him. Again, uh, you know, there's several things we could see here. Notice his prayer, and he seems to, he's associating Frith with the sun, as we've seen before, as we saw in that first story, um, and as is true from all of their vocabulary, like me, Frith, for instance, um, but yet also the way he's personalizing it, um, the way he's appealing to Frith as if Frith can hear them, the assumption that he seems to be making um, that Fiverr's messages come from Frith, right? That, that's um, uh, that's uh, uh, clearly stated in Hazel's mind. That seems to be pretty clear, though there is an if, right? If you spoke truly to Fiverr, help me to trust him. Um, that appeal to help me to trust him if you spoke truly to him. He doesn't ask for confirmation, right? If you spoke truly to Fiverr, send me a sign now that I can know it, right? That's not his prayer, right? His prayer is if you spoke truly to Fiverr, help me trust him. Um, but all of those things, which are interesting enough in themselves, aside, I love that second paragraph also for the same reason I love the first, the way in which it helps us to invest ourselves in the imagination of rabbits. Um, are you sending us to live among the clouds? That question, if one human being were, if, 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 if a human being were praying that under similar circumstances, it would seem to have an entirely other 
uh, uh, significance, right? You think of like you know, the idea of like a castle in the clouds. Um, are you sending us to live among the clouds is not a good, that's a scary thing, right? Are you sending us out of this world? Is this place that we're going so fundamentally alien that, uh, that you know, rabbits can't even really live there? Is this, uh, is this like, are we going to a world that will support rabbits? Um, are, ha, ha, are we leaving rabbitry behind like the, like Cowslip and his people were? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is in that sense into the unknown that he sees them going as they're going up the hill and, and staring straight up into the sky. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sharon asks about, uh, uh, Sharon is asking a natural philosophy question I can't answer. Talking about how cats have uh, way more motion sensing receptors in their retinas than humans um, and uh, notice and orient towards motion much more than humans. Um, uh, they can't help the way they react to motion. Is it also true of rabbit eyes? I don't know. My guess would be yes, because they um, rabbits as prey instead of predators have a different reason to spot motion, but no less motivation to do it. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I'd have to ask a a, a zoologist about that. But um, uh, but but that's definitely the impression that is certainly made upon me by uh, by that by that first paragraph. Um, uh, and then, of course, I do want to, to the, the side note of Hazel's faith here, which I've already which I've already referred to. Here's another example. Um, another example of common things that is common things in our human experience, made marvelous, made remarkable by seeing them through rabbit eyes. And here, of course, I'm thinking of the bulldozer that destroyed the old Warren. Before that happened, that is before they left, said Holly, a great hoodoo came in the field from came came into the field from the lane. It wasn't the one the men came in. It was very noisy and it was yellow, as yellow as charlock, and in front there was a great silver shining thing that it held in its huge front paws. I don't know how to describe it to you. It looked like inlay, that is like the moon, but it was broad and not so bright. And this thing how can I tell you? It tore the field to bits. It destroyed the field. He stopped again. Captain, said Silver, we all know you've seen things bad beyond telling, but surely that's not quite what you mean? Upon my life, said Holly, trembling, it buried itself in the ground and pushed great masses of earth in front of it until the field was destroyed. The whole place became like a cattle wade in winter, and you could no longer tell where any part of the field had been between the wood and the brook earth and roots and grass and bushes it pushed before it and and other things as well from underground rabbit corpses undoubtedly um, um, yeah um, it's a bulldozer right notice I mean he Adam such, does such a wonderful job of describing this from the outside Right? How would this look to someone to whom this thing is completely incomprehensible and its its actions are completely incomprehensible? So much so that it's this point, um, more than any of the others that the other rabbits are skeptical of. Right? I mean, I, if, if you could call S Silver's remark skeptical, I'm not sure that's quite the right word, um, but uh, but they seem more willing, more unwilling to, to, or not unwilling, unable to understand what it is that he's describing there. Um, 
but of course, to me, the other um, um, the other thing is um, about this is that it's it's not just the fact that we are being invited to look at a bulldozer the way that a rabbit might look at a bulldozer um, and describe it the way that he might describe it. I, I always loved as a kid that um, um, the idea of the blade of the bulldozer being some great silver shining thing that the hoodoo held in its huge front paws. Um, yeah. By the way, uh, when I uh, moved to New Hampshire this past year, last year, um, and was getting my license plates changed, I really, really wanted to get a vanity plate for my car that said Hoodoo-Doo. Um, I think that's just like the coolest vanity plate in the world. Um, so I was totally going to get a Hoodoo-Doo license plate. But sadly, somebody else in my state has already thought of it. And I couldn't think of a good way to shorten it because you need all those U's. Um, and I, I was unwilling to, I, I couldn't drop, I couldn't get myself to drop the initial H either. Because uh, it just too fundamentally changes the words, so um, so I haven't come up with a way yet that I could get my Hoodoo license plate that I always that I that I always wanted. Sorry, little personal side note there, um, but uh, uh, and it's exactly seven characters, which is what I could get in New Hampshire theoretically. Anyway, um, my point is, it's not um, um, it's not that uh, it's not just that we see the bulldozer and its actions from the rabbit point of view in a physical sense, right? We also see the bulldozer and its actions from the rabbit point of view in a moral sense as well, right? We, get a, we, we have a moment of moral recovery as well as imaginative recovery, seeing this with new eyes, um, seeing not, not recovering wonder, but in this case recovering horror. All that's happening is a bulldozer is clearing land that they're about to build on, right? I mean, this is a totally, um, uh, this is a this is a totally mundane um, chore, right? Um, it, it, you know, this is. Uh, I mean, I grew up. My dad works in construction. My dad drives a bulldozer, um, and I saw him drive a bulldozer many times. Um, you know, and you're in the construction business. You know, clearing the land, and even if you know there's, um, you know, there are animals who are living there, like you know, you got to get rid of them, and it's just it's a totally natural thing, right? It's you don't even think about it. Um, seeing this, um, you know, the idea that a new housing development, you know, going into uh, this in, into the Sandleford area there um, is uh, um, like the fall of Troy, you know, uh, uh, prophesied by Cassandra, you know, it's the, the great catastrophe, this unimaginable catastrophe um, to those, uh, uh, to those, uh, to those rabbits. Um, again, I, it really contextualizes things, I think, in, 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 uh, uh, in a really compelling way. Um, interesting, uh, Carita says, the first time I read this, I don't, uh, I didn't really realize what the thing was. Um, I was so fully rabbit by this part of the book that all I saw was the monster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so fully rabbit. I think that's a really great way to uh, to, to 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 talk about it. Um, uh, two more, and then we'll move on. Um, uh, one, of course, is again hearing Kehar's talk, right? Um, and Bigwig relating what Kehar is describing. You know, 
we talk a lot, people talk a lot, you know, in the modern world about how modern technology has made the world smaller, right? Um, you know, between between air travel and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, information technology, um, you know, the, 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 the world has been made smaller, right? Well, uh, you know, reading Watership Down makes the world bigger again, uh, and I think a, a really useful way. He says, said Bigwig, looking very straight at Holly, he says that a long way from here, the Earth stops, and there isn't any more. Well, obviously, it stops somewhere. What is there beyond? Water. A river, you mean? No, said Bigwig, not a river. He says there's a vast place of water going on and on. You can't see to the other side. There isn't another side. At least, there is, because he's been there. Oh, I don't know. I must admit I can't altogether understand it. Was it telling you that it's been outside the world and come back again? That must be untrue. I don't know, said Pickwick, but I'm sure he's not lying. This water apparently moves all the time and keeps breaking against the earth, and when he can't hear it, he misses it. That's his name, Kehar. It's the noise the water makes. Um, uh, the way in which they are struggling to comprehend this incomprehensible thing that Kehar is describing. The big water, I love that phrase. It's a, uh, that, uh, it's such, a, such a wonderful description of ocean. Um, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, that sort of the, the alienness of the entire thing. Um, again, we're sort of imaginatively recapture the perspective of people who have never seen the shore, you know, who can't even imagine such a thing as an ocean, um, where it looks like the world ends and there's nothing but water. And Kehar has clearly tried to explain how vast the ocean is, but yet he's crossed it, or at least he's been to France. I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly where, though. You know, goodness knows, gulls can fly really far. Maybe he has been to, you know, Iceland or Greenland. Who knows? Um, maybe he's been the other way and been to Norway and Sweden. But um, uh, but anyway, of course, you know. These rabbits live in England, you know, they're, they're on an island, but they've never even heard of the ocean, right? And they, and they can't even really conceive of it. Um, so I, I, I think that the, the way that we can see Bigwig struggling with this and Holly, um, you know, struggling to understand it um, is, uh, is, again, just to me another wonderful moment of that, um, of the awe that, uh, that, that sort of gets communicated to us here. Um, Finally, I want to return to the artistic question. Um, Rabbits, says Mr. Lockley, are like human beings in many ways. This is the beginning, the first paragraph of the chapter right after Holly's story about what happened to the Sandalford Warren. One of these is certainly their staunch ability to withstand disaster and to let the stream of their life carry them along past reaches of terror and loss. They have a certain quality which it would not be accurate to describe as callousness or indifference. It is, rather, a blessedly circumscribed imagination and an intuitive feeling that life is now. A foraging wild creature, intent above all upon survival, is as strong as the grass. Collectively, rabbits rest secure upon Frith's promise to Elahera. Hardly a full day had elapsed since Holly and had come crawling in delirium to the foot of Watership Down, yet already he was near recovery while the more light-hearted Bluebell seemed even less the worse for the dreadful catastrophe that he had survived. Hazel and his companions had suffered extremes of grief and horror, 
during the telling of Holly's tale. Pipkin had cried and trembled piteously at the death of Scabius, and Acorn and Speedwell had been seized with convulsive choking as Bluebell told of the poisonous gas that murdered underground. Yet, as with primitive humans, the very strength and vividness of their sympathy brought with it a true release. Their feelings were not false or assumed. While the story was being told, they heard it without any of the reserve or detachment that the kindest of civilized humans retains when he reads his newspaper. To themselves, they seemed to struggle in the poisoned runs and to blaze with rage for poor Pimpernel in the ditch. This was their way of honoring the dead. The story over, the demands of their own hard, rough lives began to reassert themselves in their hearts, in their nerves, their blood and appetites. Would that the dead were not dead, but there is grass that must be eaten, pellets that must be chewed, cracker that must be passed, holes that must be dug, sleep that must be slept. Odysseus brings not one man to shore with him, yet he sleeps sound beside Calypso, and when he wakes, thinks only of Penelope. Um, I won't get too far into the into the uh, Odyssey reference there at the get there at the end. Other than just to say, um, I think it's kind of wonderful that we get that kind of a that kind of a mythic connection at the end. Notice how he um, has associated rabbits with what he calls primitive humans, um, and he is clearly trying to to delineate a way in which their psychology, their awareness, their imagination is different from ours, right? That we can't just, it's not just that we can't think in human terms physically, right? That we have to look at the world the way that they look at it. We have to think about it the way they think about it. Um, we have to prioritize things the way they prioritize them. But also he tries in moments like this to explain the difference not just in the experience, not just in the priorities, but in the faculties of the rabbits, the mental faculties of the rabbits, not because they're dumb, but because their lives are different from ours, and what he describes as their blessedly circumscribed imagination. Um, but, uh, but I love the fact that at the end, he connects them not with, he sort of, the, 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 the final metaphor that he offers, the final sort of parallel that he offers us is not down but up. That is, it's not it's not to a low thing that he compares them, but to a high thing, um, uh, to a great epic hero. Um, anyway, um, uh, they do experience, as Carita points out, they do experience the tale in a similar way, even much, it's described in much stronger terms here than, um, but 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 also with the stories of El Herrera, um they're, you know, they're sort of sympathizing with it. They're, they're, they're sort of experiencing it. As Carita says, the deep empathy that they experience um, and that they react with grief instead of being aloof when they listen. It clearly is part of the communal experience. They, they um, and notice the way that Adams contextualize it is as a form of grief, almost a, a, a kind of ceremony, right? Um, that they are, they are honoring the dead by this, by sort of sharing the fear and the horror uh, and the suffering of that moment with them vicariously uh, through the story. And again, it shows you the function of stories, right? This is the first time, um, well, I guess you could count the story of the Warren of the Snares that Fiverr tells at a very rapid pace at the end of book one. Um, but other than that, it's the first time we've gotten a story that isn't the story of Elahera, right? Um, I, but we see how it's connected. Remember also the first proposition 
in the Warren of the Snares before they fell back on Dandelion and the story of the King's Lettuce was for Hazel to tell them the story of their adventures, right? Um, so we can see how these kind of contemporary stories um, serve in a, in, a, in a sort of a similar way to uh, um, to the stories of El Herrera. Again, we see this sort of this perpetuation of of rabbitry, this 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 establishment of this imaginative social connection among them, all both the rabbits that are there and with the rabbits that have been, um, um, you know, so it is in that sense a kind of, a kind of memorial. Um, but anyway, um, the other thing that I would um, point out is again where he ends up here, um, you know, there is grass that must be eaten and pellets that must be chewed. Um, you know, the, the demands of their own hard, rough lives beginning to reassert themselves in their hearts. Um, and one thing I would point out in connection with that is the way in which throughout um, throughout the story, and I, I think it becomes much more apparent in this in tonight's section um, than, in, than in book one, that kind of edge of pragmatism that keeps kind of cutting in, right? Those moments when you hear characters who are clearly good characters and appealing, and this doesn't seem like it's supposed to be a flaw in their character, right? That we're supposed to react to it that way. Um, but, you know, they keep saying things like, but will he be of any use, right? Or like, but what is he good for? You know, you remember the kinds of passages that I'm talking about? We're going to look at some of them um, in, a little, in, a, in a couple minutes here. But, um, uh, but that kind of thinking, you know, that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're practical, right? And they're thinking about practical things. They're thinking about the now and the needs of the now and to what extent their needs and the needs of their warren are going to be served by any other thing. Um, they don't have any kind of, uh, you know, I think about some of the things that you guys were saying about the art of the warren of the snares too. Um, there was a sense in which that was art for art's sake, right? Art to distract them, not something that was designed to be of any use to them now. Stories of Ella Herrera are useful in several ways. Uh, shapes on the wall, not useful, right? And that's, you know, when you guys were talking about that, th th those were very rabbit-like thoughts. That's definitely, I think, a trend, definitely a theme. Um, but uh, let's see how much further we can get here before, uh, uh, before you or I fall over. Um, I want to look at the the what I think is the dominant theme of this first half of book two, and that is the old principles and the new practices, the way in which they, as they're establishing a new Warren, are changing and innovating. Um, because remember, we just had the Warren of the Snares, right, where innovation and changing the old ways was definitely questionable, right? Um, but, so how do they make their way in this new world? This is a passage from the very beginning of book two, um, sort of summarize, you know, from part of the, the sort of the synopsis of the final stage of their journey. Um, without Hazel, without Blackberry, Buckthorn, and Pipkin, Bigwig would have died, back in the snare, of course. Without himself, he would have died, for which else of them all would not have stopped running after such punishment? There was no more questioning of Bigwig's strength, Fiverr's insight, Blackberry's wits, or Hazel's authority. When the rats came, Buckthorn and Silver had obeyed Bigwig and stood their ground. 
The rest had followed Hazel when he roused them, and, without explanation, told them to go quickly outside the barn. Later, Hazel had said that there was nothing for it but to cross the open pasture, and under Silver's direction they had crossed it, with Dandelion running ahead to reconnoiter. When Fiverr said the iron tree was harmless, they believed him. A um, couple things here. We can see the, uh, you know, that everybody trusts everybody else, right, and recognizes the the group in, you know, the, the, the different strengths and abilities that they all have. You know, it's been, it was Hazel who recognized these things and really began to sort of draw these things out and put them into play. Um, uh, but, uh, um, but again, we can see how they all come together, how they work together um, as a unit. Notice the contributions of all of them, even Pipkin, right? If not for Pipkin, Bigwig would have died. Um, and that moment when they're digging out the peg, um, Bigwig was very close to death. Had they even just taken... They, I mean, yeah, they pr presumably somebody else could have bitten it if they had taken time to widen the hole more so that a bigger rabbit could get his head down there. Um, but they might not have had that time, right? So if it hadn't been for Fiverr and for Pipkin, not through Fiverr's insight, but just through Fiverr's diminutiveness, um, Bigwig would have died. So again, that question when they leave the warren, why bring these runty rabbits? Well, okay, maybe Fiverr earns his way, but Pipkin, seriously, right? Fiverr and Hazel spend their whole day convincing Pipkin alone of the rabbits in the old warren to come with them. Why bother? What possible use is a scrawny little guy like Pipkin going to be? And uh, and we see for Pipkin. In fact, um, I love that one of my favorite Pipkin moments um, uh, comes in... Uh, uh, right after uh, Holly arrives, um, Pipkin comes to... He's, uh, Hazel sent, spent, sends Speedwell up to tell everybody what happened and to tell them to stay there, and Pipkin defies his orders and comes down to meet him. What are you doing, he said sternly. I told Speedwell no one was to come down. It isn't Speedwell's fault, said Pipkin. You stood by me at the river, so I thought I'd come and look for you, Hazel. Anyway, the holes are just here. Is it really Captain Holly you found? Bigwig and Dandelion approached. I'll tell you what, said Bigwig. These two will need to rest for a good long time. Suppose Pipkin here and Dandelion take them to an empty burrow and stay with them as long as they want. The rest of us had better keep away until they feel better. So we get two things here, right? One is Pipkin's courage, right? You stood by me at the river, so I thought I'd come and look for you. Why do they follow Hazel? They follow Hazel because he runs their risks for them, like Ella Herrera, right? Dandelion saw that and complimented him for it in the woods there, way back in, you know, chapter 4, chapter 5, where, way, way back at the beginning, um, the first time they went into the woods. Um, and we've been seeing it ever since. Um, but notice how Pipkin himself has been changed. Um, notice the effect on Pipkin of, uh, of Hazel's kindness to him and of Hazel's own courage and example um, is that now Pipkin is, uh, you know, he who was the smallest and meekest of all of the, uh, uh, of all of the rabbits is now um, showing a kind of courage that many large and strong rabbits might not have shown. Um, but not only that, we see again how Pipkin we see Pipkin's usefulness. Of course, the next day when Dandelion comes up and reports um, on what happened and tells him about the very bad night that they that they experienced, he emphasizes how great Pipkin was, 
how Pipkin was the one who kept um, Holly talking and, and got him through the night. Bluebell, of course, was very important for Holly, um, as Dandelion says, but he says Pipkin was great, right? Um, it is possible that Pipkin helped to save Holly's life that night um, by coming down. Um, so, um, anyway, it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's a, a really small contribution, but you see even Pipkin um, uh, has his place, and all he needs is somebody to have the imagination, somebody to have the compassion to not just dismiss him as useless because he's so small. Um, everybody has value if you're willing to, uh, uh, to invest in it, as Hazel does invest. Um, we uh, had, there's this question of, uh, but I want to kind of push on that a little bit as we see it expanded. Um, here's right after Hazel has described his idea about uh, using the bird to scout for uh, to find mutters, as uh, uh, as uh, uh, Kehar would say. Uh, by the way, Kehar is, I, you know. I mean, I admire Hazel as much as I admire almost any fictional character, um, but uh, but nobody beats uh, Kehar and Bigwig for me. I, I just uh, I, I am so in love with those two characters. But anyway, um, Hazel's anxiety and the reason for it were soon known to all the rabbits, and there was not one who did not realize what they were up against. There was nothing very startling in what he had said. He was simply the one, as a chief rabbit ought to be, through whom a strong feeling, latent throughout the warren, had come to the surface. But his plan to make use of the gull excited everyone, and was seen as something that not even Blackberry could have hit upon. Reconnaissance is familiar to all rabbits, indeed it's second nature, but the idea of making use of a bird, and one so strange and savage, convinced them that, it, that Hazel, if he could really do it, must be as clever as Elahera himself. Um... Uh, okay, so um, uh, I think there's a gap here between perception and reality. Notice the rest of the rabbits are all thinking, wow, that is a genius idea. Hazel must be even smarter than Blackberry. Um, he must be as clever as Elahera himself. But remember, um, I... Uh, that's not true. We know that's not true. Right? Remember Hazel on the shores of the Enborn when Blackberry's trying to explain about the floating wood, right? And Hazel is just like, and now Blackberry's gone crazy, right? He just can't parse it. He doesn't get it. Um, Fiverr gets it way before Hazel does. Even Bigwick seems to get It's not obvious that Hazel gets it even before Bigwick gets it, right? Um, so, Hazel is not actually clever th cleverer than Blackberry, and he's certainly not as clever as El Herrera. But that's not to say that I think that their praise is misplaced here. Um, but rather, I think what they're characterizing as cleverness is not exactly cleverness. Um, uh, here's what I would say sort of in general about this. There are, in fact, some very exceptional rabbits in this new warren, right? Blackberry is really smart, way smarter than the average rabbit. Um, you know, he would be a really smart rabbit. You know, he would be way above the norm in any warren that he went to. That's pretty clear. Bigwig 
is really big and really strong, much stronger. Again, he too would be exceptional in any Warren that he goes to, as we'll see later on. Fiverr, also extraordinary, right? So there are some of these characters who clearly are like, you know, the all-star team of rabbitry to some extent. But, um, but I think it's important that we don't sort of fall into the trap um, even sort of the tendency that the other rabbits in the Warren are kind of falling into here to see this story as merely the um, the the you know exceptional story of this like all-star group of rabbits who were like the most amazing legendary group of rabbits ever um, again there, there's there's like a, a bit of that an element of that but that's not this story that's not what this story is um, Hazel, and, and, to, and to me, Hazel is is the primary example. Hazel is not cleverer, is, is not as clever as El Herrera. Um, he's not even as clever as Blackberry. What is he then? What does he have? He has moral courage, right? He has compassion and the desire to include others. Um, the perception um, to uh, that enables him to value other people. Remember that initial conviction that he had? We looked at this way back in the first class. That was two weeks ago, but it feels like a longer longer ago than that. Um, remember that uh, conviction that, you know, if they do get away from the war and he's not going to let rabbits like Bigwig run everything or else why go, right? Remember that passage? Um, and at the time it sounded like it, it was potentially, it sounded like mere grumbling, right? Um, you know, like, I'm, I'm getting kicked around here, and if I'm just going to get kicked around wherever we end up, then why bother, right? That, that seemed, there, was, there was definitely kind of an, under, uh, you know, a, an undertone of that um, in that thing he was making. But I was suggesting at the time, and I think now we've seen it clearly borne out, that it's part of a wider conviction um, on Hazel's part. Um, the sort of toad flax outlook... Right, um, as Hazel describes it at the beginning, you know, these are my claws, so this is my cowslip. Right, um, you know that idea that the only thing that is of value in a rabbit is their weight, right? Their their physical power. Um, who is able to beat whom in a fight is all that really matters, um, and that's the only um, you know sort of dimension in which rabbits are to be sort of set aside as worthy. Um, that outlook deprived the Warren, the old Warren, of the benefit of most of the Watership Down party, right? Certainly Blackberry, Dandelion, Fiverr, Pipkin, probably Hazel, never would have amounted to anything. That is, nobody would have, no one would have even realized that they had, you know, uh, you know, Blackberry the genius and Dandelion the, the swift storyteller and Fiverr the prophet, um, you know, and Hazel the born leader. They never would have realized, Hazel would never have had a chance to be chief rabbit of the old Warren. He wasn't going to succeed the three era. No way. Who was going to succeed the three era? Whoever was strongest when the three era died was who was going to succeed the three era, right? Um, maybe Bigwig would have succeeded the three era. Um, but um, but that outlook would have kept all of those other highly valuable rabbits on the outskirts, right? Um, and they would never have been recognized. They would never have been... And when I say recognized, I don't mean to receive the recognition that is their due, as if they're getting medals or something, but rather no one would even have noticed that they were exceptional, in fact. Um, and uh, but, but, but even more than that, the choice... Uh, you know. He, 
the old outlook is one of a sort of the, the, the choice to exclude and compete instead of working together. Right? Um, and that's what Hazel is, that's what Hazel's conviction is to work against, and that's what we see him having the, 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 the fortitude, the courage uh, to push forward even against resistance, even against resistance from his friends. Um, and I, I think the stories that we get clearly confirm this uh, as an important rabbit principle. Um, that is, that this is not just Hazel being an outlier. This is not Hazel pushing them in a new direction, but rather this is Hazel restoring something that some rabbits, like the rabbits in the old Warren, have kind of lost sight of. It's a return, not, a, not an innovation. Um, in rabbit culture, at least again, the stories seem to me to suggest that. Um, so let's look at their willingness to change. This is Blackberry and Hazel talking the morning after they, their first night on Watership Down in those um, holes that they find on the slope. Those rabbits we left, said Blackberry, cowslip and the rest. A lot of the things they did weren't natural to rabbits pushing stones into the earth and carrying food underground and frith knows what. The three of us lettuce was carried underground, if it comes to that. Exactly. Don't you see? They'd altered what rabbits do naturally because they thought they could do better. And if they altered their ways, so can we if we like. You say buck rabbits don't dig, nor they do. But they could, if they wanted to. Suppose we had deep, comfortable burrows to sleep in, to be out of bad weather and underground at night. Then we would be safe. And there's nothing to stop us having them, except that buck rabbits won't dig. Not can't, won't. Um, now, the parallel that he's making with Cowslip's Warren, I think is really interesting, right? Um, they'd altered what rabbits do naturally because they thought they could do better. Blackberry clearly argues that change in itself, the innovation of the rabbits of the Warren of the Snares, wasn't what was wrong with them, right? Um, the mere fact that they were doing things which were unnatural to rabbits, um, you know, that were, un that were different, that their ways were different ways, wasn't bad. What was bad was what they thought was better, right? What they believed doing better looked like, right? The direction they were moving was not the right one. What, you know, not not the right one in this rabbit cultural sense, right? It was un, um, it was uh, um, unrabbit, unrabbity. Um, uh, now, a, a good, as Michael uh, Cheskowski is reminding us, um, Elahera never relies on his strength, right? Again, the the toad flax principle. Um, what seems to be, you know, the way of their old Warren um, is in fact alien. To Elahera, right? That's not what Elahera's stories teach. Um, it's not about it's not about force. It's not about just fighting your way. Um, it's not innovation. That's a bad thing. It's where you go and why you go there, right? Um, they thought that they could do better if they altered their ways. So can we. Notice the point of contact that they start with, right? They carried food underground that's unnatural to rabbits. But of course, Hazel remembers, yeah, we used to carry food underground too. Not for everybody, but just for the three era. Wait a second. 
maybe carrying food underground for everybody is actually a better idea than just carrying it underground for the three era, right? Which one of those things is more unnatural, actually? Um, so, uh, uh, so, but, so, but, so again, it's you know, uh, what is the what is the purpose? What is the reason? And Blackberry's reason? Um, why should they alter their natural ways? Right, the natural ways are you know, bu buck rabbits don't dig, right? Does dig? That's what they do. Um, but they could dig if they wanted to. Why? The goal is just to have deep, comfortable burrows to sleep in, to be out of bad weather and underground at night, uh, to preserve the safety of the warren and the rabbits that they that have stuck together and survived this whole way. Um, uh, so again, it's not just a resistance to change. That's the primary issue. And of course, Hazel introduces another and even more radical cultural change. Um, uh, notice this is Hazel and his uh, explaining his idea about the rabbit. Well, said Hazel, the idea is simply that in our situation we can't afford to waste anything that might do us good. We're in a strange place we don't know much about, and we need friends. Now Elo can't do us good, obviously, but there are many creatures that aren't Elo. Birds, mice, Yonil, and so on. Rabbits don't usually have much to do with them, but their enemies are our enemies, for the most part. I think we ought to do all we can to make these creatures friendly. It might turn out to be well worth the trouble. I can't say I fancy the idea myself, said Silver, wiping Holly's blood out of his nose. These small animals are more to be despised than relied upon, I reckon. What good can they do us? They can't dig for us. They can't get food for us. They can't fight for us. They'd say they were friendly, no doubt, as long as we were helping them, but that's where it would stop. I heard that mouse tonight. You want him? He come. You bet he will, as long as there's any grub or warmth going. But surely we're not going to have the warren overrun with mice and, and stag beetles, are we? Notice the casual, unashamed despising of lesser creatures, right? That silver. And it is silver. Silver's a decent guy, right? I, again, I, I don't think we have any cue here. This is the passage I was referring to earlier on in the class. I don't feel that we have any cue to be recoiling from silver here. Right? I think that if if we as readers read this and we're like, oh, okay, Silver's a bigot, right? Silver's bad. I think we're missing the point. I think people who respond that way to this passage are being resistant, are being unwilling to invest imaginatively, to take the imaginative leap that Adams is inviting people to make in this book. Um, but and but anyway, so, so yeah. So I mean, this is not this is not. Bad, it's not bigotry. Well, it is bigotry, I guess, but it's uh, but it's but it's okay, right? This the, this kind of xenophobia is perfectly natural, right? Um, I don't trust other creatures. Remember, we got that sense even in the Elahrera stories. Right? Thinking back, especially to the story of King Darzan and the lettuce, right? Um, that sense. Remember, at the time when we were talking about like what kind of animal is King Darzan and this 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 animal city, right? There's this sense of all these other animals working together in this one kingdom under this other foreign king, and then there's the rabbits with Alohera over here, right? And all those other animals, whatever kind of animals they are, we don't really know, and it doesn't really matter, um, but they're all against the rabbits, right? You know, it's, 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 it's the rabbits against the whole world banding together. And uh, um, uh, so... Again, that's... So that's this what, you know, Silver's conclusion here is... Um, uh, is uh, a matter of um, it's a matter of of 
an it's, it's a logical extension of that same sort of principle. Um, now, uh, Hazel has the radical idea, right? Let's extend the idea of solidarity, which is essential to rabbitry, outward, right? Not just rabbits looking out for each other, but what about us and yonil dogs? What about us and, and birds? What about us and mice? Um, as he points out, they, they, um, our enemies are their enemies. Notice how um, Hazel focuses on a positive and Silver on the negative, right? Silver says, we can't get any good from them. Right? What are the mice going to do for us? What are the beetles going to do for us? Right? Of course, we'll see what beetles will do for them. Uh, it, you know, very soon, actually, in the next chapter. But uh, plenty beetle, yeah. Um, but uh, but but it's not just that, right? So again, he's focusing on the negative. Like I don't see what we have to gain. Hazel's statement is different, right? Their enemies are our enemies. Notice the difference? Hazel is again speaking with compassion, with empathy. He is taking the part of and imaginatively investing in the lives of these other creatures, right? Think of the hedgehogs, right? Many of the things that hunt us hunt them too. Um, many of the things that hunt us hunt mice as well. Um, we and mice are in a similar kind of position, right? We should have fellow feeling with them, right? It's not a question of what can we get from them, as Silver suggests, but um, why shouldn't we have compassion on, on them? Why shouldn't we work together? Just as rabbits stick together, why shouldn't we stick together, you know, with the other enemies of the Elil, right? Um, it's pretty radical. That's pretty strange. Is this, uh, um, is this radically countercultural? Um, no, we know it's not radically countercultural. Why? We have El Herrera to show us. Kate, I agree with you. Um, Kate um, focuses on how um, Kate Neville f focuses on how in the story of the trial of El Herrera, um, we get not just him. You know, it, it's not only about his not being the strongest. Um, uh, she's you know, survival is a matter of judgment, of being better at judging what people will do. Um, you know, that one needs to be able to judge the character of everyone else in the environment. Um, Kate, in that sense. Uh, Hazel is as clever as Ella Herrera, right? Um, he is uh, he is good at doing a similar thing that we see Ella Herrera doing, right? Because Ella Herrera is we see this both in the King's Lettuce story and in the Trial story um, that he is better not just at like manipulating people, um, but at anticipating people, right? Figuring out as you say, figuring out what they're going to do um, and where they're going to go. Um, uh, yeah, good. Yeah, Kate Neville also points out that Hazel does what the youngest son usually does in fairy tales, treat apparently weak creatures with dignity and compassion, which always works out well in the end. Um, yes, yes, I agree that that is a, um, what Hazel does is a kind of theme that, uh, that is, uh, is uh, uh, prevalent in fairy, in fairy tales as well. Um, yeah, good. Uh, um, I just... Uh, Continue just just a, a couple more really quickly here. Um, since I've mentioned the trial, I want to glance at a couple scenes from the trial, uh, and then I'll and then I'll finally let you go. Um, this is Prince Rainbow at the beginning of the at the at the beginning of the story. Let me introduce you. This is Hofsa. I want you to be his friend and look after him. Where does he come from? Asked Della Herrera. 
I certainly haven't seen him before. He comes from another country, said Prince Rainbow, but he is no different from any other rabbit. I hope you will help him to settle down here, and while he's getting to know the place, I'm sure you will be glad to let him share your hole. Elohera and Rabscuttle felt desperately annoyed that they were not to be allowed to live together in their hole, but it was one of Elohera's rules never to let anyone see when he was angry, and besides, he felt sorry for Hoofsa because he, he supposed that he was feeling lonely and awkward, being far away from his own people. So he welcomed him, and promised to help him settle down. Hoofsa was perfectly friendly, and seemed anxious to please any everyone, and Rabscuttle moved down to the other end of the warren. Um, notice the initial reactions to Hoofsa, right? He's a rabbit. So even though it's, they know that Prince, I mean, Elohera knows that Prince Rainbow is doing him no favors, right? He knows that Prince Rainbow um, is uh, is suspicious of him and trying to, to hamper his activities, right? Prince Rainbow is being very open about that. And yet, when this when he introduces them to this other rabbit, Elohera's own perfectly, um, uh, his own perfectly uh, uh, genuine sympathy for Hufsa is clear, right? Um, he supposed he was feeling lonely and awkward, right? So we welcomed him and promised to help him settle down. He's annoyed he can't live with Rabscuttle, but yet he's still going to, you know, come and support Hufsa here. Um, uh, we get um, by contrast. We get by contrast. The outlook of uh, of of the Elil, right on the jury, they're all mad, you know. Whispered one of the stoats, "Nasty little beasts! They'll say anything when they're cornered." But this one is the worst I've ever heard. How much longer have we got to stay here? I'm hungry. Now Elahera had known beforehand that while Elil detest all rabbits, they would dislike most the one who looked the biggest fool. That was why he had agreed to a jury of Elil. A jury of rabbits might have tried to get to the bottom of Hussa's story, but not the Elil. For they hated and despised the witness, and wanted to be off hunting as soon as they could. Notice how that tendency to despise lesser creatures is a characteristic of Elil here, right? That sort of general hatefulness that the Elil have, that that uh, the way in which their hearts are full of the desire to hunt and kill rabbits, is expressed in this, um, uh, in in this, uh, in their in their not just hatred of, but dis that that but despising. Um, rabbits and misjudging them, right? They're all mad, you know. Um, they'll say anything when they're cornered. They'll say anything when they're cornered, not because they're mad, but because they're smart, right? Um, you know, the, that's those are tricks. That's ingenuity, right? It's not madness. Um, he doesn't understand. He doesn't appreciate uh, what's going on there. So again, I think it's interesting. You can hear a, a sort of a gentle reflection of Silver's outlook, right? And which again all seems to be sort of a confirmation. Hazel's right, right? This deviation from the way that they have always looked at the world. Rabbits stick together, even like a stranger, a suspicious stranger like Hufsa. Rabbits stick together, right? Um, but we don't trust anybody else, right? And of course, um, Elohera's um, own actions in this story, of course, show, as Bluebell suggested, that uh, this is um, uh, this is um, you know that that the when he reaches out to the other creatures, notice he doesn't actually ally himself with them. It's not like Yona becomes his best friend, right? He has to bribe both Hawak and Yona to help them, right? Um, 
it's, so it's not a question of just building solidarity. In a sense, Hazel's going further than Elahrera did um, in that story. Um, and no, Michael, I'm not suggesting that Silver's acting like an EO. I don't. I, I'm not going that far at all. Um, but what I am saying is, if we have a question at the end of that discussion, whose perspective, Hazel's or Silver's? And again, Silver is not. It's not unique. Silver is clearly sort of the spokesperson for the status quo in their culture as it's been, right? Um, in the culture that all these rabbits are are are, are familiar with and take for granted. Um, so you've got that. That traditional, that culture which is traditional to them, that cultural outlook, and Hazel's new idea, which is countercultural. Um, which one has the endorsement of Ella Herrera? Right. That's my only point. Is that it's clear that it's Hazel's and not silver, and not silver's. It's Hazel and not the status quo that ultimately um, has uh, has the 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 affirmation, I think, of Ella Herrera. Um, one last thing, <clears throat> and then I'll let you go. Notice we can see this illustrated in Kehar as well. Um, uh, somebody, I forget who it was, was talking about the ambiguity of Kehar's accent. I don't think... Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, Yana uh, yeah, Redeker is pointing out... Um, uh, that I, he gets confused every time I say Yona the Hedgehog because, of course, Yona does sound exactly like your name, doesn't it? Um, Emily, thank you. Emily was pointing out how like the, the it, it's kind of hard to place Kehar's accent. Um, that's because although Kehar is, you know, uh, Adams explained that Kehar was inspired by a Norwegian officer that he met um, uh, in the army. Uh, and Kate, I dislike. The reading of the only thing I dislike the only, the major thing I dislike about the audiobook version the unabridged recorded recording of Watership Down. First of all, can I say I love the fact that it exists? It didn't exist for many years. I, I I've been pining for an unabridged recording of Watership Down for many years until they finally released it, and I'm delighted by it. So I'm not going to complain. But I agree with you, Kate. I think he does Kehar badly, and the reason he does Kehar badly is what he does is he gives Kehar a human accent, and he gives him a Scandinavian. And I believe he's doing a Scandinavian accent, and I believe that his authority for that choice in Kehar is the comment that Adams makes that he was basing Kehar on a Norwegian um, officer. Um, so he gives him like a strong Norwegian accent. Um, but that's not right. I'm convinced that that's not right. Um, he doesn't speak like a Norwegian, he speaks like a seagull. Um, uh, um, uh, he, whoa, seriously? Sorry, Sarah Lagarde was just telling me that Ralph Kosham, the guy who reads that, is the father-in-law of one of our Mythgard students uh, who comes to Mythgard. Really? I didn't, I knew that. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Um, he reads most of C.S. Lewis's books, too. I'm a big Ralph Kosham fan, actually. Uh, but anyhow, uh, so, um, but as I was saying, he doesn't speak like a Norwegian. He speaks like a seagull, and that I think is like the the answer is um, is is that it's you, you have to read him like a seagull squawking, um, because that's what he sounds like. You know, so don't like obviously when you know the most obvious of course is when he says yark yark yark. You know, supposed to just read yark 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 in a Norwegian accent. That's clearly yark yark yark. I mean, he's. That's he's 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 making a seagull sound, right? Um, 
there, anyway, here's Hazel coming back to Kehar, uh, having their second conversation there on, in their first meeting. Still here, said Hazel. You fight Hawk? No fight, answered the bird. No fight, but watch. All, watch, always watch. It's no good. Hungry? The bird made no reply. Listen, said Hazel. Rabbits not eat birds. Rabbits eat grass. We help you. What for help me? Never mind. We make you safe. Big hole. Food, too, the bird considered. Legs fine. Ving no good. E bad. Well, walk, then. You hurt me. I hurt you like damn. Hazel turned away. The bird spoke again. Is long way? No, not far. Come, then. Um, <laughs> I think Kehar was my uh, my first ever in my life uh, uh, encounter of swear words, actually, um, uh, uh, which I found kind of fascinating in uh, my uh, wide-eyed wonder. I believe I once quoted Kehar at a crucial moment and got in very big trouble for it. Um, but anyway, um, um, notice here with Kehar that he too, he takes for granted, it's not just like, you know, oh, those rabbits, they're so provincial and, you know, xenophobic. All the animals naturally do that, right? That's the world that we see. Kehar um, is very suspicious of the rabbits, which you'd think would, uh, I mean, the rabbits aren't threatening, right? I mean, shouldn't he know, especially with his wide experience, that rabbits are no threat to him? Rabbits are not, I mean, as Hazel laboriously tells him, rabbits don't eat birds, rabbits eat grass, right? We're not going to hurt you. You have nothing to fear from us. But the very fact that they keep coming up to him, right, and talking to him is suspicious. Then why would you approach me, right? Vat for help me. Um, that phrase, vat for help me, is a, is, a, is, is a wonderful synopsis of this whole thing, right? This is a profound question that Kehar has asked Hazel, just as, you know, Silver and Holly and the others are saying, vat for help the mouse, right? So Kehar is saying, vat for help me. Why would you do that? Um, you must have some strange kind of reason. And uh, um, Hazel does have a reason, and it is a pragmatic reason, right? Uh, Kehar will be very useful to them. Um, so it's not pure altruism. It's not, you know, oh, we should all love each other, and we're all Frith's children and should stick together. It's not like that. There is still that rabbit-like pragmatism in it, and yet it's also tied to that thing which, again, I find so fundamentally important in, in Hazel's character. Um, that empathy, that compassion, that recognition of the worth and value of other creatures, um, uh, which transcends mere, pragma mere pragmatism. Um, yeah, <laughs> Carolyn says, uh, seagulls sometime attack rabbit kittens, we learn. Kehar might believe the rabbits were going to finish him off. Yes. Vengeance! Vengeance! We've got you now! Yeah, they could see him as a threat and be trying to attack him. It's conceivable, but still, it's hard to imagine he's, he, he feels very seriously threatened um, uh, by the rabbits. But anyway, okay. All right, I will, I will, I will let you go. Um, we didn't um, uh, Bigwig in the ditch uh, being called by the Black Rabbit of Inlay. Um, I want to come back to that moment um, uh, because I, I think that's a really, really interesting moment. Um, but um, anyway, um, I, uh, I 
I'm glad you guys could all join me, and I look forward to uh, finishing um, to finishing book two next time. Uh, the this the way that this book builds and grows. You know, I, I was about to say like, okay, it gets, it gets really exciting in the next section. Um, you know, things really heat up, but I'm going to be saying that for like every section for the whole rest of the book. Uh, so you know, uh, why? Uh, <laughs> Why bother? Anyway, thank you very much, everybody. See you guys next week. Bye now.